Welcome to SCN2A Insights, bringing you the latest research and clinical updates on SCN2A and genetic epilepsy from around the world. Welcome to this episode of SCN2A Insights. I'm David Cunnington. And I'm Chris Pearce. And in this episode, you're going to hear from some families about the impact that SCN2A has had on them. Why are we featuring that in this episode, Chris? February 24th is International SCN2A Awareness Day. And around the globe, SCN2A groups, their families and their supporters are raising awareness about SCN2A and the related disorders. We spoke to a few parents from around the world in order to hear about their families, how SCN2A has impacted on them and also their hopes for the future. We interviewed Angie Aldridge from the United States, Nicholas Lorente from Germany in Europe and I interviewed you as well from Melbourne in Australia. Angie resides in America, as you said. She's married to Isaac and has three children, Mark, Gillian and Luke. Angie writes a blog called Mighty and the Bean, which provides great insights to, into the ups and downs of having a child with special needs. And Angie has this innate ability to write what we're all thinking and feeling in a very eloquent way. Make sure you follow her. So welcome, Angie. Thank you so much for having me. I'm the mom to three children, um, Jillian, Mark and Luke. Uh, Mark, our middle son, he's six and a half and he was diagnosed with SCN2A in um, August of 2015, followed about six months after his autism diagnosis. So, you know, in the beginning, Mark had a lot of delays and just developmentally, we knew something was off with him. We kind of were suspecting autism and we began getting evaluations through the school system and then later through um, Kennedy Krieger Institute in uh, Baltimore, Maryland. And we were able to get him a diagnosis of autism at 20 months of age um, because he was missing all of his physical and um, milestones that really got our attention. He didn't walk until he was almost two. You know, there was no speech, no speech sounds. He was just delayed all around. I would say that global developmental delay was our first diagnosis. And then, um, you know, we received the autism diagnosis in early 2015, but there was still something a little bit off. Um, you know, he wasn't walking. He had very low tone, sort of that floppy baby. And so they were concerned that there may be something else going on. So we had our first round of genetic testing. He went through and they tested for just a baseline type things. I think Prater, Prater-Willi, uh, Fragile X, there were some other things, Angelman syndrome, and all of that came back negative. And then they said, they asked us, approached us if we would want to do whole exome sequencing. Um, and so we agreed and my husband and myself and Mark were all tested. And about six months later, it yielded a result and it came back that he had an SCN2A um, missense mutation, um, that it was a pathogenic variant. And so that we knew that we had our answer to what we were seeing and it helped us put all the puzzle pieces together that it wasn't just autism. It, it really helped to explain um, a lot of the delays and it's helped to further explain as Mark has gotten older, um, just some of the cognitive impairment and things that we're seeing. Since you've got that diagnosis, what has that meant for you? So one of the biggest things when we received the diagnosis, you know, as I mentioned, it, it, it really helped us make sense of the whole puzzle. So, you know, in addition to not walking when he should have been walking, uh, not talking, all of those other things, Mark was also having complications with, with his GI system. We have dealt with a lot of GI distress and we were, you know, seeing a specialist for that. We noticed that his ankles were pronating. So we were seeing a lot of physical characteristics and physical manifestations. And so once we got the diagnosis, it was 
just very helpful to be connected to the patient community because then we could connect with other families with SCN2A and understand that a lot of what we were seeing, other people were seeing in their kids. And it really helped us to connect and identify and understand. Sometimes it's hard to tease out what is what is just your child and how they are and what is SCN2A and what are features of autism. And so I think it really helped us figure out um, and tease out what to do from there. And it helped us connect with other parents who had children with SCN2A. And they were able to suggest people that were further along the journey were able to suggest us different therapies to try. It was suggested that we give cranial sacral uh, therapy a try. Uh, other people suggested physical therapy, you know, horseback riding. There were lots of therapeutic things that other children with SCN2A were benefiting from, in particular OT techniques. They were all really helpful um, and suggestions to help us kind of guide in the right direction because with autism, it's very broad and sometimes it encompasses all of the other things that you may be dealing with when a child has a genetic condition that has other features in addition to all the sensory challenges and all the neurological concerns that come with autism. The power of connecting with other families is really evident. Will didn't get his diagnosis till he was 14, so we didn't have that connection. But once having it, you know, like you said, all the the pieces sort of fall into place and you talk to other parents and you can sort of start teasing out what is SCN2A, what is just your child, and um, start addressing some of those issues. So what are some of the challenges that you are facing with Mark? Some of the initial challenges were just being able to access services and getting them paid for through insurance, and then also having the appropriate care and support in the school system. And I know a lot of parents will really resonate with that. You know, I think in the very beginning, we were told that Mark would benefit from 40 hours a week of ABA, you know, applied behavioral analysis uh, therapy, and that he really would, would benefit from weekly speech and OT and PT sessions. These were all things recommended to us. And, you know, of course, you turn around and go to the school system and they don't offer that level of intense service, at least in the state where we live. And so it became on us to be able to figure out how to provide it in, you know, by private insurance. And my insurance company did not cover habilitative services. And so, you know, I had to learn very quickly what that meant. And that meant rehabilitative is when there was a skill there, you lost it, now you have to get it back. Well, the insurance company would pay for that. Um, However, they would not pay for habilitative because that meant that the the skills were never there in the first place. And to to acquire those skills takes a lot more therapy, hours, and time and money. And that was something that our insurance did not cover. And so I had to scramble and figure out how to purchase an insurance plan um, for Mark, which is not that simple. So once we did get coverage for him, we were able to kind of get going. But that took several months before I could get everything in place. And meanwhile, you know, we're worrying because, you know, you know that early intervention window, um, the earlier that you intervene and provide services, the better. So there was a lot of stress in the beginning about getting um, his services set up and going and covered. And of course, it's expensive. So no one can really afford that out of pocket. So we really had to rely on the insurance. And then from there, it was trying to juggle all the things. And so that meant my husband and I both worked full time. And at the time, we only had two kids. Now we have three. And it was trying to figure out how to get everybody to where they needed to go, when they needed to go, and how to get Mark to where he needed to be. And so it really enlisted my entire family, my mom, um, my dad, my sister, her boyfriend, even sometimes we'd call on the neighbors. Uh, you know, we, we used it our small army to get Mark to where he needed to go. And for two years, we drove him an hour and a half away 
for daily therapy because we live in a rural area in our state and there really were no service providers that could provide that level of care for him. And then as time has gone on and we have transitioned into public school, you know, it's really become a challenge to make sure that Mark is supported in the ways that he needs support. And so a lot of programs that are designed around autism don't necessarily address all of Mark's unique needs. And so we've had to be very vigilant with different things. So Mark is on a special diet, and so we don't allow him to have dairy or gluten, which presents some problems when they do snack and there were other types of crafts at school. So we've had some challenges there. But he also uh, now, you know, for those that are listening that know anything about SCN2A, you know that seizures are often part of the clinical picture. And for Mark, thankfully, at least to our knowledge, he has not experienced a seizure Um, But we do know there are seizure triggers, um, like getting overheated, and that's something that Mark struggles with. Can't really sweat very well, and so, you know, he can get overheated easily. Of course, things like flashing lights, you know, there's just kind of common seizure triggers, and so we try to make sure that the school system is aware of all of those concerns and so that they take it seriously and they be careful around Mark um, with those things. So, you know, in, in terms of challenges, I would say access to services, Um, being able to find providers in our area, and then always challenging to find a way to make it all happen when you're living your life and you have a career and you have other children. So just trying to juggle all the plates. It's like a full-time job on top of your full-time job. We were talking yesterday, Mm -hmm. uh, we had a meeting at our local hospital and talking about what families with SCN2A or DEs need. And we were saying literally it's a full-time job managing all the appointments and the therapies and on top of anything else that you do. So you're doing an amazing job, Ange. Thank you. Sometimes it doesn't feel like it, but yeah, we we try. We try to fit it all in because I think in the beginning, um, we've definitely paced ourselves a bit and slowed things down. But in the very beginning, we were trying everything. We were putting him at aquatic therapy. We were looking into all kinds of different diets and supplements. And we just wanted to throw everything at him because we were desperate to see some type of progress because everything we were trying wasn't working. So we've definitely paced ourselves as he's gotten older. I can relate to that. We have done that as as Will's got older as well. And you talked about seeing progression. What are you seeing in Mark? Sure. So one of the big things that we see, and, and he's teaching us many lessons, is that Mark is a very slow learner. And so it takes many, many repetitions for him to get a skill. And so what he has taught us over time is that we just have to keep trying. I think it's very easy to give up and decide, you know what, after a year of this, he's not getting it. We're not going to try anymore. Um, and that's how I felt with straw drinking. And I just posted something recently, but, you know, he, he will be seven in May and he was still drinking out of a sippy cup. And it was because of his low tone and his oral motor problem. He just could not figure out how to form his lips around a straw. And so we worked with every cup under the sun. We worked with OTs and speech therapists. And, you know, one day he just picked it up and he he figured out how to purse his lips around the straw and he sucked. And we were just beside ourselves that, you know, we had no idea that he he would be able to do it. I just, I was convinced at that point that he would be on a sippy cup for forever um, or we would have to figure out some other way for him to just safely drink out of an open cup. But, you know, he has shown us that he will get it. It's just going to take a lot of time. And so Mark has begun saying words. He speaks. Words kind of more like he will 
identify objects and he will, um, if you say to him, you know, he wants his iPad and you kind of say, you know, um, iPad, he'll say iPad, please, you know, sort of fill in blanks, but nothing is really functional yet. So we're not to the point where he, you know, sort of has any type of conversation. I'm not sure if we'll get there, but we are learning that eventually Mark will come around on some of these skills. And so that is something um, I know that the researchers mentioned in a previous uh, conference that they know they you know could observe in mice that it took many many trials for the mice to do a particular task and that that slow learning is something that they were seeing and I definitely resonate with that we see that with Mark um, so in terms of how he's doing he's doing very well he's healthy you know he just takes him a really long time to get it he will get the things that he practices the most and so I think that's the lesson he's taught us is that repetition is key what are some of the hard things, Angie, like I've seen you talk about some of the regressions, some of the challenges around seeing Mark get something and then perhaps a regression for whatever reason, whether he's sick or it's just part of, of the condition. How do you manage that as a parent? One of the things that we make sure to do is celebrate every small inch stone um, that we meet. And that includes things like straw drinking or being able to stay the months of the year or his numbers, because what will happen, especially in times of illness, he will regress. And so what that looks like is that he will stop talking. We won't hear any words. He will maybe not sleep at night. Um, he'll be up a lot. He will be frustrated. So an example of that was that over the holiday break where he wasn't at school for a couple of weeks, you know, kids get bored. And so during the day, he would be just done binging through his TV shows on Netflix and he would want a different program. Um, but the problem is, is that Mark is set in routine and rigid and with what he likes and what he's comfortable with. So if you tried to show him a new show or some, some type of new music that you think he would like, he doesn't like new stuff. So even though he wants novel, he also, you know, he doesn't like novel. So it's, it's this weird place where we end up. And so when we have periods of regression, he gets really frustrated and there's just a lot of crying and tantruming. And so that's what we see a lot is we see the loss of words. He'll regress with toilet training. So we are, I would say like 75% toilet trained. But when we go through these periods where he will, you know, and I wouldn't even necessarily call it a true regression. It's not like we, we have to relearn a skill. He just stops doing that skill, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. um, he will stop talking, you know, and it's not like we have to do many repetitions to get him to talk again. He'll just, once he's feeling better physically, he'll then just start talking again. So, you know, it's just been interesting to kind of watch the plateaus and they seem to come pretty regularly. I mean, every December around the holidays, we go through a rough patch and it's just, it's kind of made me dread the holidays a bit because I know that Mark is going to be out of school. That's going to be confusing. That's going to go against the grain of his routine. And then that also spells all sorts of other problems um, that he may encounter with that lack of routine. And usually that's accompanied by winter illnesses and all that kind of stuff. So those are some of the, probably the harder things we see. And, but he's just, he surprises us so much. One day he'll show us he can do something, you know, pretty amazing that we didn't think he could do. And then the next day we'll find him in, in a situation that doesn't make any sense that he, he knows better. He'll completely forget to try to go to the bathroom and he'll have an accident where he's, he, maybe he went two weeks without one. So 
that's kind of the mystery of him is he's, he's kind of unpredictable. It's a real joy to see you show all his his inch stones, as you said. And, you know, I think we all celebrate those in our SCN2A family when we see our, our kids take a step forward. You really feel the rejoice through our community when our kids take those steps forward. So it's really great that you share those uh, with the community, not only obviously with your fa- your small family community, but that everyone else gets to see those, those steps forward as well and celebrate them with you. What are your hopes in terms of SE and 2A? What, what are your hopes for the future? You know, of course I have hopes for Mark and, you know, and then of you know, SCN2A as a whole, but, you know, my hopes for Mark would that he would be able to functionally communicate not only his needs and wants, but his thoughts, impressions, feelings in a meaningful way, and that, you know, he would be able to make progress. And of course, that we would have avoid seizures. We know that at any point we could start to deal with that, you know, but my hope for, for the SCN2A, you know, community is that, you know, we continue marching and speeding towards a cure. I do believe that there are targeted treatments. We see that, you know, clinical trials coming. And, you know, my hope is that for the family that gets an SCN2A diagnosis when, you know, their baby is super tiny, that we'll be able to say, okay, we have something we can do about it, you know, because it's never, it's never comfortable or easy pill to swallow to first to be told, oh, we found the answer to what we were looking for for your child as to the reason why you're seeing all these things. It's best the way. Um, there is no cure. You know, I think that we were blessed enough to have a diagnosis at the time that there was a community on Facebook that was gaining momentum. And I believe at the time we were like among 80 families when we were diagnosed. And now it's, it's hundreds of families. So, you know, the patient community has increased. And so I'm hoping that because of that patient community and the connections and the interests with researchers that, you know, a cure, whether that's a medication or that's gene therapy or whatever that looks like, that there is a tangible answer for families um, when they receive the diagnosis. And I, you know, my greatest hope is that for kids like, like Mark and like Will um, and the older kids that, and adults, that there will be an intervention that is just as effective for them as it is for the infants that are diagnosed. That's a big one for us as our kids get older. Are these treatments coming through going to be helpful for, for our kids? I mean, of course, we soldier on and we advocate for treatments for anyone because we don't want families to go through what we have. But, yeah, there is that hope there that uh, any treatments or medications might help our older kids. I guess moving on from that, if you could you know, stand in front of either researchers or clinicians, what is one thing that you'd, you'd challenge them to do? I think that a question that I have for researchers would be, what can we do to speed research? My challenge to researchers would be, how can you engage the patient community in a way that allows us to feel like we have some type of, not control, but you know that we're all working together? Because I think that sometimes as caregivers, we feel sort of out of control and, and helpless and that we're just waiting for science to come up with this you know, sort of magical cure. And so when you talk to researchers, you hear that things are, you know, years away, that clinical trials take years to develop, that there's a lot of hoops to jump through with the FDA. I know that there's some um, clauses with, with rare disease and there's some loopholes there. But, you know, I think that I would like to see the researchers really engage with patients and patient communities and be receptive to our input as far as what we are seeing. 
um, in our children and how that could potentially help transform what they are seeing in the lab. But I think that for parents who are in the busyness of caregiving, it's really important to feel like we have a vested, you know, not just interest, but I guess our efforts, there's some type of effort that we can make that will contribute and help towards research. And that's why whenever there's any type of opportunity for research, I'm always interested to see if we can participate because it makes me feel like I'm doing something. That's my thing is what can we do? What's a tangible thing that we can actually do to contribute towards speeding up research? Just lastly, Angie, what advice would you give to a newly diagnosed SCN2A family? Um, I think my biggest piece of advice would be to connect with family groups and to find other families either near you or on social media that also have SCN2A and then find who everyone sees for who are the good neurologists, who are the good doctors. Get connected because it takes a while to figure out who's going to be part of your child's medical team. And if you, you know, can tap into the knowledge and the experience of other families who have been down the road ahead of you and have worn out the, the bad neurologists or the ones that maybe are not necessarily bad, but maybe the ones that aren't well-versed in, in SCN2A, I think you're going to save yourself a lot of time and a lot of, uh, you know, wasted time really trying to get connected. So I would suggest getting connected um, with other families and then see who the good specialists are. And then also pay attention to what they're seeing being in older children so that you can be on the lookout for those types of things. Other families are seeing, you know, for instance, I know that in the community, SCN2A community, we see a lot of issues around puberty. You know, so even though Mark's not there yet, I'm still paying attention to what, if there's, you know, do I need to be looking for early signs of puberty? Do I need to be cautious about hormones and what that's going to look like? And so even though every child is so unique and different, it's still helpful to see what other people are, are facing further along in the journey. And so I think that if we can learn from the families who've gone before us, I think it's going to save us a lot of time. Thank you for joining us today. I really appreciate your time. You've really explained well your journey and uh, the hopes and, and the joys that you find with Mark and also some of the challenges. And we really appreciate you sharing that with our community. Oh, thank you for the opportunity. I appreciate it. Our next interview is with Nicholas Arente from Germany, who heads up SCN2A Europe. I was lucky enough to meet Nicholas in December 2018 here in Melbourne, and we've remained in contact since, providing support and advice to each other as we navigate supporting the families in our region. Nicholas is father to Eric, who has SCN2A. Tell us a little bit about Eric. Well, thank you, Chris. Well, Eric is uh, eight years old. Uh, he's a very nice boy. He's nonverbal but he's able to communicate more or less, at least the basic things, uh, with signs or cards. Or we parents probably are now able to understand him more or less what he's trying to say or to express, just looking at his eyes. Physically, he's, he's almost okay uh, for an eight-year-old uh, boy. He sleeps pretty well. He eats well. He's also nice with the people around him. He likes the kindergarten, so actually everything is perfect. Does he have seizures? Yes, he has seizures. He started uh, having seizures at the age of five. Yeah, and this, of course, was one of the biggest challenges, let's say, because autism, uh, it was diagnosed at the age of two, more or less, it was more or less manageable. Uh, but seizures, of course, uh, brought quite some other challenges. How did you first notice that there was something wrong that led you to try and find out what might be happening? Pregnancy was not easy because 
I had to lie on the bed from month five, six to month eight, nine. But it seems that this this had nothing to do with this problem. So the first six months were quite normal in all areas. And from month eight, nine, I would say he started not doing whatever a child should do. Mm-hmm. Uh, first more in the movement and later yeah, in all other areas. Just go through how you got the diagnosis. Yeah, it was quite difficult because the pediatrician we had, uh, she was convinced that everything was okay, which was a bit, bit delayed like many other children. But some relatives, they, they are in the area of, of the, yeah, small children and they gave us a little bit the alarm and then, yeah. So at the age of two, more or less, then we were with with experts and they told us it's probably autism. So we started doing the things that you normally do. And then, as I said, uh, at the age of five, uh, suddenly seizures started as well. And in the healthcare system in Germany, Nicholas, who do you interact with? So where do kids with autism and uh, epilepsy fit? What sort of specialists do you see and what departments? It's quite interesting because uh, if you have autism or autism, the, your pediatrician thinks he, uh, your child has autism, you are more in the social pediatrician or psychiatrist to, for children and all these areas, so quite far away from neurologists. And only when you have epilepsy, epilepsy is in the hands of the neuropediatrician, and then you are more in contact with the neuropediatrician and the social pediatrician is saying, okay, now it's the neuropediatrician. But of course, I see that there is no connection between the two. And this is sometimes challenging. And we know that probably without seizures, we would have never had our genetic test. And this is something that uh, yeah makes me uh, worry a little bit. Yeah, it's certainly interesting. And I'm sure as time goes by, that'll be more evident that some people, some children with autism, but without seizures actually have a developmental epileptic encephalopathy, but without epilepsy as a major focus. Yeah, and this is something I want to push uh, because I hear that 80% of autism comes from genetic mutations. So I cannot really understand how this is not done almost automatically once you have diagnosed autism. Because in our case, it was clear that to know or not to know was, was crucial. Uh, we started with lamotrigine, which uh, was uh, the typical anti-epileptic that you take at the beginning, but uh, it was a wrong one because for our loss of action, SCN2A mutation, sodium blockers is not the best solution. So when we changed to Kepra, things went a lot better. And that's really important within the SCN2A space to have that understanding of loss of function or gain of function, and it's good that you you have that understanding in helping Eric. Having got your diagnosis, how did that impact on you as a father? Yes, of course, uh, we all want to have uh, healthy children. I have a lot of fun w- with them. And all these special needs, uh, yeah, they were not easy from the beginning. It's all these medical checks, all these special therapies, not to know what really happens. Autism also being so abstract and so wide. So it was challenging from the beginning and and the problem was when we were more or less accepting autism then epilepsy started so it was another shock so it was not easy because suddenly yeah, the nights were very short and seizures normally occur at in the morning five to seven in the morning 
but very often I was uh, realizing that I didn't want to have the average child with, with the average life. And Eric yeah, gave it to me. It's certainly very challenging, but it, it also opens doors which would have remained closed. And, and has it impacted on your family? Yes, such a situation brings you to, to the limits and you need to handle this somehow uh, with yourself first and but also with your wife, with the rest of the family. And it's an ongoing process. I mean, it's, it's not easy. It takes time. So I imagine it will probably take some years to, to find a good solution for everybody. We've been down this road now for 18 years and, and we're, we're still navigating it, Nicholas. So it's a daily, weekly challenge, you know, to balance your child's needs, your own needs and, and your, your partner's needs. And so it's, it's a, a challenge that we, we continue to navigate throughout life. Yes, I fully, I'm fully aware and I try to, to keep this in mind and, and be, be, be conscious that it's not easy for, for anybody. And we all have to, to find compromises in this journey. So having met you, Nicholas, I've learned that one of your special skills is searching for things using Google. That's one of your sort of professional tools that you're good at. So have you been able to bring that skill to SEN2A and helping to learn about both Eric and other things we can do in SEN2A? I think it is. I think because I've been working searching, well, in the patents uh, world, you, you learn some skills uh, which then you can use in, in Google or other areas. And I'm, I'm really quick and can really find whatever I want in the net. And of course, well, SEN2A, to put SEN2A in Google is quite easy and quite fast and quite, it works very fine because it's, it's very specific SEN2A. But I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm able to, to find everything I want in, in the net. And, and, and I hope that this, so my, my job has helped a little bit uh, Eric in terms of yeah, finding information, experts, other families or whatever. Like you say, you know, it's sometimes easy, easy to find mechanistic information using something like Google, but sometimes the more soft information or, you know, social information, you know, with impact on families, those type of things, that's the bit that often doesn't live as readily or is, isn't as readily accessible uh, via Google. Yes, of course, uh, this is something that in Facebook, uh, creating closed groups and then going into into very specific and very private uh, situations, then, then, then you find what you find in the net is, is, is more the general information or the expertise of people or the documentation that people are publishing. But of course, you need to go for the more private areas in order to, to go into the details and, and the specificities of, of SCN2A and disorders. And as we know, in, in the rare disease space, uh, like SCN2A, often the parents are the experts. And, and whilst we're not medical practitioners, we've often experienced something that another parent is going through and you can share that and support them through that experience. So it's very important, those uh, family connections. Absolutely. I, I always say, I mean, we are the experts. And it doesn't mean that I'm not criticising the, the clinicians, or but, but it's impossible I mean, if you have 7,000 rare diseases, it's impossible to be experts on any of these rare diseases. But that's why it's so important that uh, patent, uh, patient representatives are invited in, in, in congresses and, and conferences because they bring very, very special information to, to the clinicians or to the so-called experts. And, and I think the, the two 
cohabitate very nicely in, in the discussions and and I think in the majority of the of the places or congresses I've seen or I'm checking, I mean they are they are included. I think it's a very interesting job or hobby. And you've been proactive in starting SE into a Europe. What was your motivation behind that? Yeah, well about more or less one year ago I was in, in Melbourne. I was doing my round the world uh, alone and I decided to, to check if, if there was somebody somebody in, in, in Melbourne I, th- I had in, in mind that yeah, somebody in Australia. And I, I ended up having lunch with uh, Will Pierce and the family. Later, I was in Seattle in a conference of the Family SCN Trade Foundation. And I see how far both no, USA and Australia managed to go. And I hope that yeah, something similar could, yeah, could happen also in, in Europe which would certainly help Eric, but also all other European SEN3 children. Because there are challenges in different regions. And I know when you met with us over lunch, and that was really lovely to meet you when you came to our place for lunch, you know, you highlighted there are some peculiarities of med- the medical research community and some of the regulatory things around that in Europe that we don't face, for example, in Australia or aren't faced in America. Yeah, the main challenges are, are two here in Europe. First, yeah, that we have these two levels, the Europe, European level, and then the country level. It's not automatically the same. It's not automatically recognized. So you have the specific legislation, you have the rules, you have also the ways of working, which are certainly different in Germany or in Spain. And, and secondly, the languages. We see this clearly that a lot of people not being good in English, then of course they, they remain very passive in the discussions or even request things in their native language. And of course, having so many languages in Europe, it's a big challenge. All these languages, all these different legislations makes the things, especially in the cooperation, more more, more difficult. I think it's getting better with the time. It's one of my goals to to make it even easier and and make this, this cooperation also outside Europe, of course, and more possible or easier. And of course, to reach all families and, and get them well informed. What are your hopes, you know, around SCN2A for both Eric and SCN2A families in Europe? Yeah, my hope is, of course, have a clear vision. Uh, I don't want to hear from any European body or agency or whatever that once something has been discovered, maybe in, the, in Australia, maybe in US, that, yeah, we need to wait. In Europe, we need to wait because... Yeah, you haven't done this and you haven't prepared that. And this is something I don't want to hear. So that's why I want to pave the, the, the path to prepare everything, be aware of every single detail. And once something can be done, it can really be done for Eric, but of course for all European children. I'm doing now for the pre-training of the Eurodis uh, Winter School, which is something very interesting, very nice it's offered by the european union for patient representatives really to get closer to what happens from the research until the the medication let's say and 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 i see it's it's really challenging there are a lot of small details that you need to to be sure they are correct and and i'm more and more convinced that somebody needs to be in front and and really ask some questions to the right people so that once some partial maybe therapies, some partial solutions for some of the children also in Europe, then they can really get access to it. So thanks very much for your time and for the great work that you're doing for families in Europe. 
thank you very much for the time uh, and for the offer to share my experience with you. And our final interview was with you to give us some insights into SCN2A and your experience as a mother and the impact it's had on our family. So tell me a bit about you and your family. So we are a family of four, yourself and me and our now 18-year-old adult children, twins. Uh, We have Ella and Will and Will was diagnosed with SCN2A at the age of 14. Will started having seizures day four that we noticed and they were presented as apnea seizures. So he would basically turn blue and um, need resuscitating and that went on for a few weeks. We then went home and he was stable for a couple of weeks and then had a, another big seizure and ended up at the children's hospital and then spent the pretty much the rest of that year in hospital having seizures. He would have a seizure, wake up, have another seizure, fall asleep, have a seizure. And he, he, he really rotated through that for quite a few months, which would obviously have a devastating impact on his little brain. And because of the devastating presentation of his seizures, they originally thought that Will had Alpers, which is a neurodegenerative condition, and they sent him home for palliative care. And basically we thought we were taking him home to die. And obviously that's a devastating diagnosis for anyone to um, deal with. But over time we, we started seeing really small gains in him, like we'd see a small smile or just really just a small gain in in something that we hadn't seen before. And um, over time we saw these continue. And so this sort of went against the Alpers mm. um, diagnosis. He, he During that time when he was in hospital, he had every test that was possible, metabolic, you know, muscle biopsies, all, all kinds of tests that didn't show anything up. But this Alpers was diagnosed on his deteriorating EEG. But as I said, over time we realised that he was making games which went against that Alpers diagnosis. Over the next couple of years, up until he was probably four or five, he had a really rough time. He would continue to have quite significant seizures. If he got gastro or any other illness, he would end up in hospital fighting for his life. He was very fragile medically for the first five, six years of his life and we, you know, we were in and out of hospital quite a lot. And um, it was a pretty traumatic time for him, but also us as a family. But then over time, the, the seizures started to get less, although when they came, they came with a vengeance and they were very strong, severe seizures, which could last for up to 45 minutes, which would, you know, involve giving rescue medication, ambulances and emerging, you know, racing to hospital. And these really went on really, until he was in his teens, these massive seizures. And we never knew when they were coming. In saying that, we could always tell when there was something wrong and you could sort of see it building. It was like this crescendo with him and you, you'd you sort of sit and watch. And we'd always say the teachers or his carers, you know, he's not right, there's something coming. And then, you know, we would be hit with one of these seizures. And that's been the case for him right across his his life. There was There was always sort of some indication and he also had an aura, so he could also tell us in some way that something was coming. He would come and find an adult that there was a seizure coming. Some of the other things that he's had to deal with is movement disorder, but it took us quite a while to work out that's what it was. 
uh, probably till we saw Ingrid Sheffer, where he, yeah, he would get pain and that would come in his arm or his legs and that was quite painful for him. But these are all symptoms that we were trying to work out what they were in isolation because we had no diagnosis. We had no way to work out that these things all fitted under one umbrella like SCN2A. So we were managing them one thing at a time, one day at a time, which on reflection, it, it was the only way we could do it because we didn't know. So how did a diagnosis eventually appear? So diagnosis came, we, we were, uh, because Will was complex and we were getting no answers, there was all these, always these mysterious symptoms that we thought came under umbrella or the neurologist thought it came under umbrella. So we were sent to um, Professor Ingrid Sheffer to go into her genetic epilepsy trial. So that meant um, having an appointment with her and getting Will's DNA sent to America to be tested to see on, on the genetic panel at that time. And it took quite a few years for that to come back, probably two or three years, I think, maybe for that to come back with an answer of SCN2A. Yeah, that was when he was 14. So quite a long diagnostic odyssey for us or for Will, but one we're glad we know now because it, it, it makes sense of a lot of things that he's he's dealt with and many of the symptoms are similar or the same to other SCN2A patients and it just it just makes it makes sense and we've found our tribe we've now got families around the world that we've become friends with and we're working with together to make the SCN2A impact less by working together. So what have been some of the challenges along the way? I think it's interesting I recently last year I um, participated in some focus groups on you know the pluses and minuses of having a diagnosis and in some ways I feel that not having a diagnosis meant that we just we just managed each day as it came. We managed each symptom. We weren't reading into each symptom what it was or what it meant or where it was going. It, we sort of, after we let go of the Alpers diagnosis, we had the freedom just to take Will each day. So I think that that was kind of, it was a blessing. In, but in saying that, I'm very glad that we now have a diagnosis, particularly with treatments in the pipeline, that knowing what's caused all his problems, that there's work being done to help, probably won't, may maybe help will, but to know that other families won't have to go through what we've been through, I think that's been really helpful. It's been kind of therapeutic for me to have something to sort of work, put my energy into and, and help future families not deal with what we have. But one of the challenges that's really manifested for you, much more than for me, is that ability to work I've done paid work, let's say, um, really for 18 years. You know, I for a long time, you know, the care role was like full-time, extremely demanding. You know, it, it crushed me for quite a few years and I've struggled with pulling myself out of that that hole and, and finding a way to be, to give back or to feel like I've got a purpose and I've done that in different ways, not just in working in SCN2A. But, yeah, for sure, the challenges for me personally were, you know, I lost myself for a while. I lost who I was, what made me me, what made me feel like I was, you know, making a positive contribution to society. And, you know, it wasn't easy to come out of that, to be honest, and, and you'll know that as, as well as anyone else. But there's been lots of joy as well. So what's some of the examples of that? Well, Will is just a joy. So is Ella, I have to say that. But um, you know, Will, Will still has challenges. You know, 
people look at Will and they think, you know, he's on the milder end of SEN2A and, you know, what do we have to, to worry about? And, you know, in many ways that's correct. His seizures are controlled at the minute, although he's still on medications. He's, he's, he's got an intellectual disability and will not be an independent adult. He's functionally nonverbal, although he can communicate. He has autistic traits which need to be managed and are getting more challenging as he gets older. So, you know, whilst we've probably been through the worst, we're certainly not out of the woods and I don't think we ever will be with Will. We'll, we'll always be his carers. We'll always be making decisions with him and for him. But in terms of the joys, he he himself is a joy and he has these passions in his life and I don't even know how he comes across them, but he his passion for Highland cows has evolved over the last couple of years where he just loves these cows and he, he's drawn in the Highland cow community to the point where they're trying to work out how, how, how we can get him a job and how we can get him functioning within that, that community and, and doing something that he loves but also in a meaningful way, um, you know, and, and like he's done that all on his own. He brings people into his passions. One one of his other passions is Queen, particularly We Will Rock You, and we listen to that 24-7. We can sing it back to front. He can sing it back to front. So one of the really joyful things for me as a parent recently is Will's working with a young heifer, so that's a young type of female cow, to show her at this sort of year show season. Who knew? Cows like music too. So Will playing Queen and singing We Will Rock You to this cow while he's washing and brushing her. Yeah. <laughs> it's pretty joyful. Yeah, and he does. The, the, to know Will is to, yeah, to find joy, I think. And he, he's a, you know, he, he knows who gets him, you know, and he really, he really grabs onto those people who understand who he is and what his passions are and, and you know, basically who, who will indulge those passions really. And we're really lucky to have some really special people around us that have helped us develop Will into the young man that he is, but also, you know, there's some pretty amazing people out in the world that have really taken him under their wing and um, that's really evolving at the minute. So that's really exciting and brings a lot of joy to him and to us. What about hopes for the future? Well, I think my hopes for Will, which have always been the case, is that that he's happy and, and he is happy. In terms of, I guess, SCN2A, if there was a treatment that could reverse some of his symptoms so that he, he was more independent, you know, he, he's not independent um, in his activities of daily living. He can't brush his teeth. He can't go to the toilet by, you know, completely by himself. He, you know, he can eat food, but he can't cook his own food. So, you know, if there's things that can reverse those things or help him be more independent, then that would be, I would be chasing that down fairly fast um, and being interested in having those conversations for him. Um, and, you know, there is some hope around that, but we have to wait and see where that goes. But, yeah. And what about broader hopes, not just Will, but for the family? Wow, that's a big one. I think Will hopes we'll be buying a farm and we'll be retiring on a farm. If it's near a beach, I'm open to that. But the, I don't know, broader hopes for the family is to uh, just to contribute, I think, in an ongoing way to this community, to the SCN2A community. Thanks for those insights. Thank you. One of the reasons we wanted to do this podcast and interview some parents was just to give insight to people working in the field of SCN2A or genetic epilepsies, 
to understand how SEN2A impacts on our families' lives, the challenges and what's important to us as families. And having spoken to some of the researchers throughout the podcast who have been interviewing people, that's a theme that's come through and it really helps the researchers not just think about it's this cell in a dish or this particular experiment, but it's actually making a, the work they're doing is making a real difference to children's lives and potentially saving lives. Yeah, and, and a lot of the scientists now who work in the lab, you know, it's a very confined space and, um, you know, have photos of our kids up on their wall or the SCN2A calendar up on their wall to remind them of why they're trying to find answers for children with SCN2A. So thanks for listening to this episode. Please subscribe to the podcast so that you can get all the episodes when they're released and keep up with being informed about SCN2A and developmental and epileptic encephalopathies. And follow us on social media at SEN2A Australia on Facebook and Twitter. Thanks a lot. Thank you. This podcast is not intended as a substitute for your own independent health professional's advice, diagnosis or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified health provider within your country or place of residency with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition.